G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch. Today a conversation with someone who's no stranger of Adelaide, has operatic tones, but also who's in a highly impressive rock band. Cold Sleep, debut EP Hardcore, released late 2018 with punchy opener Widowmaker, has now been followed up with another two new cuts that continue to explore the mind's clash with dealing with matters of the heart. The three-piece has heavier riffs comparable to larger groups with viscous feels to the fore. Ahead of taking stage at the Grace Emily Hotel to launch their double A-side single, Pedal Stations, Rob McFarlane joined us for a chat. Welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you so much for having me. Why an expat of Adelaide, South Australia? Oh, well, I sort of um, had a circuitous route to Adelaide. I was born in uh, Hamilton, Victoria. My dad was uh, a teacher out in, the, out in the country, and he got a job in the education union in Adelaide, which prompted our family to move when I was, I think, four, four years old. And uh, so spent my childhood in Adelaide, spent my teenage years in, in Adelaide, went to uni in Adelaide. Until I got to uni, I thought I was just going to play rock and roll and, you know, find a day job that would uh, support that. But I fell into classical music, into opera in particular. And opera took me First to Melbourne, singing with the Melbourne Bach projects and, and lots of classical music projects in, in Melbourne. But then it took me to Germany, to Leipzig, former East Germany, and studied and later worked in Leipzig and Berlin. When were you first introduced to Bach? My route to classical music was by no means conventional. I was playing in a rock band here called Glue. I remember somebody coming up to me after a gig and saying, look, you've got a pretty reasonable voice. Why don't you go and have a singing lesson with somebody just to check you're not ruining it, you know, pushing your way through all these gigs every weekend. And I remember going to this lovely old guy, bald guy, grey sort of sideburns and little glasses, and he said, oh, my dear, sing uh, three notes. Ah, and I did, as such. He said, look, I don't know much about you, but I think you're wasting your time with rock music. I think you've got this operatic tenor voice. And I said, well, what's a tenor? I had no idea. No idea. So no musical training at high school? It was in choirs and things like that in high school, but it was so on the periphery. I mean, the, the rock band, this, this band Glue was my everything, you know. I just thought that was what I was going to do. Well, that's why they were called Glue. We'd stick around, exactly, to, you know, wear that old pun in, into the ground. And, and I had a song... With that band called Friends and Enemies that was, it, it won some songwriting awards and it had attracted some interest. So I just thought this was going to be my life. So I was really resistant to all this classical stuff. Remember this teacher giving me pieces from musical theatre, sort of light classics and didn't interest me at all. But then he gave me Franz Schubert. Very dark, very dramatic songs in German, all about goblins and killing things and ghosts appearing and eating people's spirits. and That's a bit melodramatic, but you get the idea. High German romanticism. And I just fell in love. I was like, oh, this is, this is the best Bob Dylan song never written kind of thing. And, and I just fell into that music completely, sort of heavy end first. So Bach, Schubert, Wagner, still all the composers I sing sort of professionally to this day, this sort of big grandiose sort of German music. And that's what really, what really did it for me. And I forgot completely about 
rock music for about 10 years. What was it about Bach, though? I think just this profound spirituality and and immense sort of perfection of form, but without becoming a sort of stare, you know, it, it, it was music that was at once perfect and living, breathing, you know, blood pumping kind of music and, and evoked such a sort of a an atmosphere and, and told this story that I thought, you know, of course, all these all this music comes from, you know, a religious background in this point in time in the 17th and 18th century but the, all these stories they just seemed universal to me it was like holding up a mirror to the, your, your society and I'd always thought with rock and roll that that's what we were doing the great rock and roll singers weren't just singing about sex and drugs and rock and roll but they were sort of asking questions about what it was to be a human about around other humans mm. this thrilled me and also just the drama of it I'd always had this love of the theatre of rock and roll and perhaps now that I'm in classical music, like I, I think less about the drama of rock and roll and I just turn up and I want to have a good time and sort of sing songs that have some kind of meaning for me. But when I was a kid, the, the spectacle of seeing a band like Led Zeppelin, you know, this Teutonic monster with four heads and eight legs and or maybe in Bono, Bonzo's case, nine legs coming gracing the stage and sort of being sort of not quite of this earth that really appealed to me as a kid you know zeppelin sabbath yes metallica this this sort of theatrical aspect to to playing a big rock show what music was hitting you robert at puberty oh well it was an interesting period for me because it was at once when i was finding more of the sort of aussie indie underground scream feeder Nocturnal, some of the heavier music coming out of Adelaide, Test Eagles, that kind of thing. In terms of Scream Feeder, just yesterday, one of their albums from years ago being re-released on vinyl. Yeah, fabulous. I mean, I think the, those guys are one of the most underrated bands in Australian music mm-hmm. history. Then at the same time, I was sort of just being a bit of a, I guess, agent provocateur with my friends and I was finding the most extreme stuff coming out of Century Media and things like that, Cryptopsy and Dimilborgir and all this kind of extreme metal as as well as, yeah, this sort of love of the sort of homemade Aussie underground. Was that a bit of shock and awe for the friends or was it doing something for you to share it with them as well? I think so. It was like being a bit of a, a guide into this sort of music that nobody else liked I think and and I've I've found that both in both directions you know both in what Aussie band that sold 20 copies can I worship this week and secondly what sound is just so sort of abnormal to my ears like what can I feed myself that is so contrary to what I'm hearing in school or hearing on the radio and you've got to remember too like in the late 90s the radio wasn't exactly shy of like a heavy guitar riff or something like that Mm. it's it's not like now where a distorted guitar basically bans you from major commercial radio you know you were hearing things like the rap metal movement and things like that you were hearing big mesa boogie rectifiers playing talk about the test eagles because bands like that were really punching their weight i think a uniquely sort of aussie voice it was rap metal like we've never heard before or since it was a uniquely australian voice and i think of a couple of other bands i think i mentioned nocturnal from alice springs they're also playing this very unashamedly aussie 
version of this abrasive American style of music, but both bands doing it with some kind of social conscience. There was no pretense to it. There wasn't sort of uh, backwards caps and sort of posturing. It was quite a natural, as I remember it as Mm. a 12, 13, 14-year-old, it was quite a natural kind of progression from the sort of I guess the the Grimspoon heavy grunge of the early nineties and early mid nineties. Yeah. This is this puberty intersection with music. Yeah. I guess the blossoming of adulthood. How were you balancing those two lives? I think it only got complicated later, as I do now. I don't think I thought of them as any different. I heard heavy riffs in Bach. I still do. You know, some of those massive bass lines and things in the fugues, they're as heavy as anything Metallica have put down in the last 30 years in terms of hitting those tritones, those Diabolus in Musica chords and things like that. I just didn't hear the difference. It was different instruments, but I didn't hear the difference in the music. It still had the same middle finger to any kind of convention. And, you know, Bach did things that nobody would have dreamed of doing in the 17th and 18th century and people apparently at the premieres of his big works on the Passion of the Christ, that story of the death of Jesus, people apparently fled the church because, you know, this ghastly Italian opera had taken over the German church. And I think that was the appeal of the more extreme forms of, of heavy music. Like, it was just kind of this abrasive but also incredibly technical sort of delicately woven together sound world it required more than one listen it wasn't something you could just devour and and throw away it it left you confused and I think that was the probably the the common thread for all the music I loved at that point in my life like I also loved that German period of and still do German period of David Bowie Heroes Low Lodger this is the great pop music of middle period of the 1970s I mean it's just phenomenal and it, I mean Lodger doesn't have a chorus or a hook anywhere in sight but it's still amazing pop music and that fascinated me I know I'm pressing for that age it's not easy being an Adelaide teenager no no and uh, you know I was a big fat kid and I was quite androgynous at the time and I don't think I'd really worked myself out in terms of my sexuality and things like that even at a you know fairly liberal-minded school, um, it was a fairly conservative place in terms of what was expected of you and and all that kind of thing. And, and Robert, what about school, uh, music and school? It took me basically my whole high school time to get into the specialist music school. And, you know, I was sure I was a musician, you know, and by the time I got in, I already had this rock band that was being played on national radio... But I didn't get into the specialist music program until year 10 or year 11, I can't remember. By then, yeah, my life was in this little uh, garage band that was uh, starting to do things and we were playing every weekend as as 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And so it took me quite a while. In fact, I don't think it it was until uni that I realised had I been less sort of obsessed with being in this rock band and less you know churning out cds and getting on radio and and doing all this kind of stuff actually doing the biz yeah 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 you know there were there were huge things that i could have learned for people in terms of classical music at marriottville which i may have completely missed while i was there but you know that's that's life (laughs) you got into the older conservatorium all the same i think i was lucky that i was a male with a reasonably strong voice like a reasonably naturally loud 
projecting voice. They just saw that there was possibility there. You know, I think I was rough as guts when I came to the Elder Conservatorium, but I just suspect that they saw some kind of lump of heavy clay that might be useful at some point. Where was Androgyny at that stage when you arrived at uh, university? Well, I still had hair, you know, down to my ass and painted my nails I still wore you know I was in a big bowie kick at that time and the band had been going more and more from sort of the heavy the heavy grunge sort of end of the spectrum into sort of placebo-y kind of more of of the glam stuff so I had the lashes done when I first started it and that all changed very quickly and we've talked about conformity and conservatism in Adelaide I remember clearly I was just told that none of that was appropriate the hair had to be cut makeup had to come off you've arrived as you said dressed appearing like that you were very much i guess comfortable in yourself at that point well it was the way i'd worked out how to survive i think but i don't think i'd thought about it that much it was just sort of the way i'd found to be okay enough to keep putting myself on stage to you know as, as a young as a young I mean, the band started when I was 13, so, you know, I was playing at the Gov at 13, 14 in front of five, 600 people, and I'd had no training. So it just became a bit of a, a coping mechanism, a way to get through that sort of expectation or sort of to come up to that expectation. So, yeah, it was psychologically difficult for me, and I just, you know, it was always the music that drove my decision-making, you know. I'd just completely fallen in love with this music of Schubert, this music of Bach, and I just thought, well, if that's what I've got to do for this music I've got to do it so you were told to do these steps of changing what you appeared like yeah because it wasn't changing you inside I'm sure no no. you saw that there was going to be a benefit in terms of the other passions that you had yeah and I think I was I saw that I was very very scared that that wasn't my world and still am in if I'm totally well I until very recently still was and so I thought that this sort of conformity this process of conformity was sort of just the sacrifice you made for participation in that particular side of music what changed recently particularly in terms of the classical side of you that made you feel a little bit more okay with it well it might have been there's a a few things i mean my personal life changed drastically i got married quite young and i got divorced recently and also I came back to Australia just with this feeling that if I was going to continue getting up on opera stages and things like that, it was going to be as myself. That was part of the reason why when I saw Stephen Ash looking for a guitar player, I thought, sort of thought, oh, you know, take that little strip off the uh, wanted ads at Melbourne Uni or wherever it was. Just remember thinking, you know what, this is just as much a part of me as singing Bach in big theatres. I have to allow myself to be who I am in terms of playing rock music sometimes making my living as an opera singer and a classical singer actually not apologizing for it I think I spent a lot of my early time in classical music sort of apologizing for not having been a a choir boy not having learnt piano for 10 years not having um come from a private school for example right so currently in conversation with Robert McFarlane from the band Cold Sleep and we could talk about the divorce and whether or not the song Pedal is about it, but I have a feeling it might actually be before then. Walk us through Pedal. The Bare Bones of Pedal was one of the last songs I started working on with my band. 
glue and it was a bit artificial or superficially it was about the breakup of my sort of high school relationship however I mean and this is you know fairly candid stuff it was also kind of about the breakup of my I guess my major relationship at that time was with the guitarist in my first band I mean I had no idea what my feelings were for him but I loved him in a way I couldn't sort of describe and we were drifting apart. The band was drifting apart as people started thinking about what they were going to do at uni and all this kind of stuff. And I saw this this thing that I'd always thought would be there disappearing and sort of changing. And, you know, every time we talked, it'd say, oh, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And, and I think now every ex-girlfriend and, you know, ex-partner I've ever had thought, oh, the pedal must definitely be about me. But no. And I don't think I'd ever, I'd sort of fully worked it out until I came back to playing this song I played this de- the, there's a very rough demo done at SAE from about 2003 of Pedal now this is the South Australian sort of engineering yeah, place yeah it's all very Adelaide folks it's so Adelaide so I remember playing it to Stephen he said well, this is a monster how would you feel about Cold Sleep doing it and it brought up all these feelings about not only this first girlfriend who was the first first physical relationship with somebody and it was very complicated as things are when you're a teenager, 15 or 16, and sort of not really emotionally mature enough to be in a relationship with somebody, but you're trying it out anyway. Terrified and you're meant to feel good and that she might be coming to the gig tonight actually, which is amazing and so Adelaide and the guitarist. So it'll be, it'll be quite a... Uh, so you needed to release this song... Once I started looking at it again, yeah, it sort of got updated and compressed into something a bit sort of more manageable, I think, than the original sort of ideas. It, it suddenly became clear to me that it sort of summed up all those, like they used to say in about ancient Rome, you know, history repeats itself. We tend to make the same mistakes again and again in relationships until we really stop and go look at ourselves and mm. say look, you've done this before. It actually is you. Yeah. yeah, and I'm completely fallible, you know, in this aspect of my life. A really important way to sort of say, well, we all sort of have these little compartments of sort of secrets and half-truths and meanderings around what we actually want to say to one another, and it ends up being this sort of pulled-out linchpin that even though it's nothing major, it's it sort of dismantles things mm. that were thought to be really special and that's sort of what pedal's about the chorus sort of riffs around this settle pedal idea you know calm down and i remember people always telling me to calm down when i was a kid and in love or trying to make the band work or trying to get my guitarist or sort of who was my sort of platonic significant other to join me totally in the in the journey if there was any co-pilot yeah yeah yeah. well absolutely i thought until i was about 18 or 19 he was my soulmate you know i thought that other people would come and go we'd just sort of keep making music and but that wasn't the case no not the case and um it pedals sort of about that those those things that you were so sure of suddenly disappear and you you wonder where that that certainty came from well hey hey this is jeremy neal and i'm coming up on radio notes talk all about life and my new album we were trying to make it out Let's continue our conversation with Robert McFarlane of Cold Sleep, recorded at the Grace Emily Hotel, where I'm asking him about life, travel, and really clearing the mind. How does that all work? I've been incredibly privileged in my life. I have travelled a lot. I've 
worked all over the place. I've also experienced many, many other cultures, and I mean, I'm, I'm still in a bit of a haze from it, but I just spent two months um, backpacking around Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia and Thailand. Why were you there? Well, it was a trip I'd been planning for quite some time just to sort of come to some kind of peace with what had happened in this relationship with my ex-wife and things like that, and also just to work out... You know, this idea of seeing the, the sky through the trees kind of thing. You can't see the sky through the trees and kind of these, these old adages. I think in the music industry, once it becomes a profession, it's sometimes very hard to see what is important and what is not important in terms of y- you're following, you know, madly trying to get these gigs and auditioning and doing all this kind of stuff. And you're sort of in this rush and you're competing with everybody around you. And we never stop to look at our colleagues and look at our friends within the industry and just go, this is really quite amazing what we're doing. And without getting too spiritual, spending two months around sort of general Buddhist philosophy of of sort of unburdening in terms of thought and also just genuinely finding some way of wishing other people well whatever they want because knowing that their suffering is a burden on you as well as as them it's had a really profound impact on me I think and so for me sort of looking at past relationships and past you know people that I'm no no longer as close to as I was I I think it, it behooves all of us to try and find a way to to want the best for them because Music is about memories in a way. Yeah, so oh, intrinsically. I mean, think about the first instance of music being repeated. It's, the f- it's one of the primary functions of, of memory. And, you know, but com- composers and musicians are obsessed with the idea of remembering things and things that they've forgotten has always been a core theme of music and my music as well. So, and yeah. so I'm wondering how much for you, Robert, does it taunt you or comfort you, that of music, and particularly of your own music that you write and perform? It's roughly 50-50, I think. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's a great comfort just to be afforded the privilege to do it and to be normally afforded the privilege to do it in front of people who want to hear it. This is not something that anybody should underestimate. It's um, whether or not you're performing at Madison Square Gardens or you're performing at the local open mic night. I mean, to, to play to people who will sit or stand for 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes and listen to you, that's an incredible privilege. So on that side, it comforts me. Uh, the I guess the taunting side is that it seems to have its own sort of music, and I don't know if other musicians are like this, seems to have its own fairly unstoppable sort of biorhythms. It comes back to you when you least expect it. You know, I finished a song while I was walking around in Cambodia that I had the memory of from about 14 or 15. You know, it was just a a two-line skerrick this line kept coming to me that said in my dreams I understand everything but while I'm awake I'm asleep it seems and I I kept going I'm sure I've heard this and I thought oh maybe it's George Eliot or something I thought it was a poet or something like that and then I had this sort of realization that I'd written it down in my old gig book and so of course went home saw this line you know underlined 
I think that this sort of unstoppability of, of sort of music going through your head and other people's music going through your head and other people sort of trying to work out the stuff of it, the basic sort of bones of, of what music is, seems like a sort of... It just sort of does itself and you sort of come along with it and when it tells you to, to wake up, you wake up and when it tells you to, that there's nothing there... It's like losing a friend. Um, so, so it's a fairly... I think that's the, the biggest sort of taunt. And I think that's what really affects you in terms of your, just your normal humdrum real life because, you know, it's hard to see the person next to you if there's some sort of musical monologue going on in your head that you're trying to follow. It leads to a bit of myopia and as a general rule and I think it leads to a bit of your sort of self-obsession or, in you know, overly inward-looking sort of behavior in a lot of musicians and I, I think that's the thing that taunts you you know you sometimes miss those wonderful moments in the real world and that's why you need to find music or songs to associate with that exactly exactly and sort of bring it all back and to, make new memories yeah bring it all back to who we are and who we are life is cheap you know life can be grown under any petri dish under you know you see people living on the sides of dirt roads under tarpaulins life can be found anywhere but our lives are incredibly spe- special to those of us around us and we have to sort of hold on to that and I think music is primarily for those people I think people who have delusions of grandeur with music often miss that playing to five people who really love you that's actually music's purpose and always has been you know, music was for the parlour for the group of friends you know Schubert had this group of men he used to hang around and we sort of assume now that they were all romantically connected as well but uh, they were poets and playwrights and and they all used to get Mm. into Schubert's little bedroom where he had a little piano and they'd give Schubert poetry and he'd play he'd improvise a song to it and then one would sit down and try and sing over something Schubert was playing this is what music's for there was a quote from you singing is building an instrument inside of us yeah absolutely if I play guitar, if I play drums, the instrument sits outside of our body. We can see how it functions. We do something incorrectly. We can look at our hands. We can look at the, the position of them and sort of go, oh, we can change that. After which, we can put it in a case, walk away from it. We're divorced from it. Singing, we're building an instrument. Basically, every time we sing, the inhalation of breath is sort of like building a bellows the way we manipulate our mouths and our voice boxes and all that kind of thing is sort of like building a a loudspeaker system and what makes it worse is that we can never just sort of pull it out put it in a box and walk away from it or pull it out and go this isn't working why isn't it working get a screwdriver and make a few fixes and put it back in and it works better. We you have to went to the negative there. Yes. You said the worst of it. Yes. But at the same time, I find it amazing as someone oh, who absolutely. doesn't sing yes. that you're able to do this. Absolutely. And, it, and I've never loved perfect singing in either classical or rock music. The flaws in people's voices are so exciting. I mean, you listen to sort of later era Dylan, you know, Tempest and Time Out of Mind and things like that. I mean, his voice is worn by age like you wouldn't believe, and but it's just, it somehow makes the stories he's telling us and the words he's singing even more powerful. Same with a, an opera singer, you know, Maria Callas is usually talked about as the, the greatest opera singer of all time. 
she wouldn't pass a final year university exam for voice. I mean, it's wildly all over the place all the time. But, you know, she sounds like you're throwing shade. Well, yeah, yeah. But she sings in such an extraordinarily emotive way. Every tone you hear, every heartache and every love affair gone wrong she's ever experienced. For me, that's a thousand times perfection because it's human. You are a singer of quite emotive, loud vocals. Yeah, in, in, in whatever same, style. Yeah. yeah, not just in the rock pop that you're doing mm. for Cold Sleep, which people can hear. You sneak in your your tenor operatic style. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I think the greatest pop singers have had sort of quasi operatic voices. I mean, thinking primarily of Freddie Mercury. Roy Orbison, Aretha Franklin, they all had this understanding of how breath works. You know, you, you hear singers sort of punch out a phrase and things like that, but what, what propels us all? It's this inhale and exhale, yeah. and that's what makes opera so exciting, and that's what makes great, great pop singing so exciting when you hear these words travelling on a stream of air. What's happening inside of you? So when we inhale as, as a singer, basically the the pelvic floor muscles... Yep. It, sort of release to start with and then the diaphragm expands and descends which allows the ribs to open and you know we're not breathing into those lower parts of the body they're things that happen are sort of causal things that happen when we when we breathe in we're just breathing into our lungs of course but that's sort of the feeling singing is exhaling on pitch basically what we're doing is suspending that exhalation so if i breathe out over very quick it's an extraordinary strange feeling you know to in and i think probably singers and deep sea divers probably the one thing we have in common this this sort of agonizingly slowly letting out a small stream of air and so it almost feels like you're holding back the air or you're holding back the breath but no what we're doing is just letting it out very very slowly which is why singers can sing phrases of 10 15 20 seconds at a time and it's also what makes the voice box sort of drop into our throats which allows volume and power and resonance before this learned how to drop we couldn't talk monkeys couldn't do this so um it's a fairly profound physiological thing that happens that allows us not only to talk but to sing is it addictive it can be when you're getting it right and then when you're getting it wrong it's like the worst feeling in the world and it's a strange it's a strange either or mm. you often do concerts where it doesn't quite go you know nothing's quite working like the breath doesn't feel like it's moving in the right way and things like that and you come off thinking you've just lost a million dollars on the stock market and everybody goes oh what are you talking about it was fine we feel those differences because they're within us extremely acutely this actual consciousness that you can develop yourself as a performer within your walk and talk to actually do it. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most sort of liberating things about singing is that every day you make the decision on how you use your voice, basically. And sometimes you can find yourself doing things that you never realised your voice could do. That's a very exciting thing and a very empowering thing. And when you come to different styles, for example, opera, no microphone. So it's primarily, some opera singers might not like me saying this, but it's primarily about volume. If you've got the projection and you've got the ring on the voice, there's a basic just level of volume required at all time, all pitches. 
rock music, of course, you've got a microphone down your throat. That's not necessarily necessary. We still need sort of cutting power. But my ability to use, you know, really soft sort of colours and all this, all these different colours that we can use by using our instrument differently, they suddenly become available to you with a microphone right near you because volume's not an issue. What's your view on Mike Patton? Mike Patton was one of, definitely one of my heroes and a friend of mine at school I remember bringing, Angel Dust. Nick Crow, if, if by some chance he's listening, how are you? Um, remember him bringing Angel Dust and King for a Day, Full for a Lifetime later to school and just being primarily blown away by virtuosity of the vocal performances on those two records and then later Mr Bungle California and Tomahawk Mitgus and things like that I mean this this is somebody who knows how to use their voice and also knows how to play with the dangerous aspects of the voice in a what I think is a fairly safe way like I think he he goes to the edges in a way that most people would do themselves some damage I think and he goes to those extremes seemingly with some kind of knowledge of where the absolute line is and that's I really appreciate because I think there's a lot of singers that either just push that line all the time or never even get close to it and I think as a singer risk is something we have to we have to take risks. Another singer-songwriter particularly I want to just know why they fit into your realm Michael Stipe. I just think he's Maybe after Dylan, for me, the poet laureate of our little world, I just, there's something... If I'm looking at a purely technical vocal point of view, it's it's probably not the greatest voice ever, but there's something about Michael Stipe's lyrics and vocal performances and just his completely immaculate sense of taste, compositional taste... In my personal channels, I think I've written that I think Night Swimming is maybe one of the most perfect songs about the, the tenderness of the loss of innocence. You know, I think we often think of the loss of innocence as this brute, of, of some kind of brutality. And that song describes for me something completely different in those moments of awakening. It is those clashing morning waves. Yeah. The ones yeah. that you so want to put your feet through. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It reminds me of there's a movie Moonlight of in a few years ago and there's a wonderful scene of these these two young men speaking on the beach just about life and their experiences and the tide slowly comes in as they they get closer to each other and more sort of enamored of each other. That song reminds me of that kind of imagery that you you have maybe a couple of times in your life and it's so fleeting yet so profound. Michael Stipe He's sort of like a conjurer of those moments. You know, I remember seeing him, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge David Bowie fan. I remember I was living in Berlin when Black Star came out and there was all these massive posters everywhere. And then, of course, he died and I went to Hansa Studios and paid my respects with everybody else. And I remember Michael Stipe doing a performance at a tribute a week or two later. And I think he sang The Man Who Sold the World with a piano. And he turned this into, I mean, it was almost like a, it almost became like Send in the Clowns, Stephen Sondheim. It became this wonderful, wistful sort of memory of, a, of youth 
it was one of the most profound bits of singing I think I've ever ever seen and totally live totally off the cuff he had a little piece of paper with the first word of each line that he'd occasionally look at yeah I just think it's that this is sort of these conjurer of moments that are completely fleeting there's uh, on uh, New Adventures in Hi-Fi which is one of my favourite records I think it's on the track Wake Up Bomb he just sort of slowly scoops up onto a note and holds it for about 14 seconds and it's got a tremor it's, it's the most imperfect note you've ever heard while um, Mike Berry and, and Co are doing wonderful things underneath. He just seems to get how to stay completely within those sort of fleeting moments as a singer. And I think uh, combined with his profound lyrics, I think that's what makes him, for me, yeah, one of our great vocal artists of certainly the second half of the 20th and 21st centuries. When your time comes, what song do you want played? Oh... Look, um, that's an interesting one. This, the last song of uh, Dishona Miller and the, the Fair Miller, the Maid by Schubert is probably, I think, the most profound lullaby ever. And then if there's something by me, maybe the first song that sort of... The first song I ever wrote where I thought I might be a decent songwriter, a song, song called Friends and Enemies from my first band, Glue, a song about the boat people and our inhumane treatment of them in the late 90s and uh, saddened me greatly. I think that song, because it's it's simple, it's, it's humble, and yet it was too... My, my sort of musical soulmate at the time and, and I... It was two sort of 14, 15-year-old boys expressing something that we didn't feel like adults were doing anything about and we got together actually or talked at least sort of recently about how the problem is still exactly the same we have more more refuge and soon to have more climate refugees than ever before and where there's the the treatment of of these people is is not only hostile but it's it's dangerous in terms of setting a precedent for every every other climate refugee that's going to come in the next few decades. And so I think it's, it's probably the song that means the most to me. Is the protest song dead? I hope not. I hope not. Because, I mean, watching recent doco of Midnight Oil 1984 with Garrett running for the parliament as part of the Nuclear Disarmament Party the power that movement had with those songs as the soundtrack I just think it's, it's a sad thing if it is dead let me put it that way Have I put too much of a, a spotlight on the fact that people aren't listening to music as much as they used to? You know it's funny we're consuming music more than ever but we're not listening to it therein lies the rub how can something represent a political music if it's being consumed and thrown away? It goes against the very nature of what a protest song a protest song is meant to to drill into a a certain point in time and we've had protest songs since time in memoriam I mean Giuseppe Verdi, the great Italian opera composer, was always writing against the against the political system in thinly veiled sort of context. Midnight Oil, Bob Dylan, you know, the, I mean, Strange Fruit, Billie Holiday, probably the greatest song of the 20th century. I mean, they're, they're all protest songs. They all have this piss and vinegar and fire mm. underneath them. But if we're not actively listening and we're just consuming and throwing away, they're rendered impotent. 
Robert, what's music done for you? Without music, where would you be? Look, I really have no idea because it's at once been sort of everything in my life, often to the exclusion of things I should have paid more attention to, you know, relationships and schoolwork and all this kind of stuff. And it's also been something that's, you know, and I don't think musicians talk about this, at times music has made me profoundly unhappy because it, like a white whale sometimes, you're searching for this this way of doing it or searching for a song or searching for a vocal technique. And the search is often in vain. And so it's been a profound mix of elation that I can't even describe, active, interesting work, boredom, and then also this sort of obsessive quest to find something that I can't quite, you know, something intangible. It's a complete mix, you know, like life. It traverses the peaks between sheer beauty and sheer joy and real despair and and often (laughs) with music it's often in the same couple of paragraphs or same couple of bars for me it's been a divining rod to extremes is music then the therapy or do you need therapy outside of that music i always thought i needed therapy everyone seems to be getting it i know it's it's very popular and i've had therapy and i've come to a point where I actually think looking outward is better than looking inward for almost all mental health conditions. I think once we look at the wider world... Doing things for others instead of... Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm just trying to do more things with our Syrian and Kurdish refugee population and more things on a voluntary basis and things like that. And I think without... You know, you don't want to sound like Mother Teresa or anything like that, but I think... Once you sort of have an overview and start seeing the world as a sort of a massive, sort of extraordinary people, I think those sort of issues that we often find and often feel, you know, we often feel this gaping hole inside mm-hmm. and things like that, you don't, you just don't have time anymore to look. <laughs> and suddenly, if you do look, it's no longer so empty. Robert, welcome back to Adelaide, South Australia. Thank I you hope so much. we treat you well. Oh, always, always. The brand new single, the one from you, it's yes. called Pedal. It's from the band called Cold Sleep. It is a double A side. Yes. The other song has a bit of a tongue twister for a title. It's called Stopping All Stations Except South Kensington. And it's a pretty beautiful song, actually, about mental health and about people being sort of stuck and feeling isolated and, and feeling alone. Ash used to take the train past South Kensington Station and she'd always look out on this dilapidated railway station and she started wondering, oh, how it would be if that was a person, if I kept going past somebody every day, neglecting them, nobody stopped, nobody even really knew they were there, how that would feel. Single has sort of been released emphasising those sort of mental health aspects and so we've toured in February supporting that single and donating all the proceeds to Beyond Blue to keep those hotlines and online forums open because they're often the first port of call when somebody's having a crisis, especially if you're alone, especially if you're isolated. That's a cause we all feel very strongly about at Cold Sleep. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Rob McFarlane, guitar and vocalist of Cold Sleep. Group's latest single, Stopping All Stations Except South Kensington. They can be found online at coldsleepmusic.bandcamp.com.
Next time we'll catch up with Nathan Williams of TV Dinners to talk about his concept of a compilation album called Banding Together for Support Act, raising funds much needed for those currently struggling within the music industry. And people were just emailing me all the time. A lot of bands were just putting their hand up and offering a track and sort of going, look, if it doesn't suit it, don't worry, but you know, it would be a privilege to be on it. And I was more of the case of looking at putting as many bands as possible. I sort of didn't worry about genres. The more people that are going to see it, the better. That's next time here on the show. Deep thanks to Robert McFarlane of Cold Sleep for being our feature guest this episode. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. (laughs) 